Morning, everybody. <clears throat> Let's see. So some of you guys know that we um, gather at our house on Wednesday nights. We have a little like house church. We kind of we've been going through Luke um, a lot, like we do with Mark here on Sunday mornings. And uh, on Wednesday night, uh, so we're in the tenth chapter, and we, which is. Uh, the Mary and Martha story, which I know is a familiar story and also that our boy Ryan just spoke just a few weeks ago about. And as we were reading through the passage, it reminded me of um, this book that I have. It's a collection of sermons by Paul Tillett, who I really admire and look up to. And I remember there's a sermon that I really loved on, this exact, on that exact passage. And so I ran over to the book and I got it and I brought it back to the group and I, I just shared little, little bits of it to kind of inform our discussion. Um, Tillich titled that sermon about Mary and Martha, Our Ultimate Concern. And he uses these two characters, uh, these two modes of being, as a way to talk about and emphasize. Well, first of all, he opens by emphasizing the fact that Martha's way of being is not contemptible. It's not negative, like her busyness. He says it's actually like the, the, it's the way that keeps the world turning. It's the way that preserves and enriches life. It en enriches culture, and yet Jesus says to her, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, and only one thing is needed. So we have many concerns in our lives, he says, which demand attention, devotion, passion, but they don't demand infinite attention, unconditional devotion, or ultimate passion. They're important, but they are not ultimately important. And Mary is praised over Martha because she has chosen to focus on the one thing, the only thing, that one ultimate concern for both her and for everybody. One thing. And he says that this one thing is actually the meaning of every sermon that you've ever heard. It's what they're all about. They're trying to awaken you to what is infinite and what is ultimate, that ultimate concern. So today... And we're such a gift to have Keith. But Keith uh, read us three passages, these readings. One is a fiery prophetic word against empty religious ritual and their worthless assemblies. The second, a psalm, at least in part reminding those with political power about true power, where it is found and where it is not found. And then finally, we hear stories of heroes of faith, models who lived by faith. And so if Isaiah is a glimpse of condemnation and correction, Hebrews is about those that were commended. It's about those, how they lived, what they longed for, and what they looked forward to. They're all, in they're all intended to awaken in the hearer, the reader, the listener, what is ultimate, what is infinite, what is true, what is beautiful. They're all ultimately about one thing. And this is why we set aside time here to assemble. This is why we gather on Wednesday nights or Sunday mornings or any other time that we explicitly set aside to gather and reflect and remember. It is to wake up. We gather together and like, I always like the image of a tuning fork, to strike a tuning fork and like try to tune our hearts and our minds back into harmony with that one infinite, ultimate, unconditional love and concern to fix our eyes once again. But what about Martha? Like, what about those concerns, those chores, those responsibilities, those relationships? 
the causes that we really believe in. I mean, they matter, right? They matter. So why are the many things that we care about connected to worry and anxiety? I think the answer is because they grip us. Every concern is tyrannical. It wants all of your attention. It wants your whole heart, your whole mind, your very being. Every concern tries to become the ultimate concern. Every concern tries to become God. They create turmoil within us because they're conflicting and competing and battling with one another for our, for our fealty and our attention. They burden our consciences because the reality is we cannot do justice to all of them. You guys feel that? You, you, does that resonate? Erica tells me that's called a monkey mind. <laughs> that all of these things are, 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 are taking and pulling at our attention at once and we're scattered. We're concerned with work. We're concerned with relationships and health and with our own development and education, our finances, happiness, our maturity, and on and on the list goes ad nauseum. In fact, it rings in many of our heads as we try to just get some sleep at night. And then there is that underlying concern that's fueling all other concerns, that most common and basic universal concern of every creature, which is staying alive. Because death, or rather the fear of death, is what keeps us enslaved. So let's talk about anxiety for a minute. I don't, I don't think it's a secret that Erica, you know, deals with some anxiety. Um, and she's actually been attending, um, so there's a, a, a spot here in town called the Community of Mindfulness, and they have, she's been attending these mindfulness sessions for folks struggling with anxiety, and it's been really good. And so she, during our conversation Wednesday night, started sharing about that. And she's like, you know, it was interesting. Uh, the, the group facilitator asked everybody, like, what are some things that make you anxious? People start shouting out things. And so finally, he just settles on something that comes up a few times. Someone says, traffic. And he's like, okay, good. Let's talk about traffic. What is traffic? Like, what is it? And when they came down to actually describing what traffic is, they said, well, it's being in a car that's not moving around a bunch of cars that are not moving. Is there anything particularly stressful about that? Is there anything particularly anxiety-inducing about that? But I have somewhere to be. I have to get to work. I have things to do. Illustrating how much we bring to the reality of the situation. He says, well, I don't know, it might be a good time to catch up on that audiobook that Ryan suggested that you haven't finished. Or maybe it's a good time to listen to some of those favorite songs. Or, you know, maybe, um, maybe you could practice these breathing exercises we've been learning. Uh, maybe you could catch up on some phone calls with some friends, you know. Maybe there's something else you could do here. But I think it seems clear to me that what bothers us, like deep down, what bothers us, and what immediately stood out to me when she told me that story was not being in control. And even as the group kind of laughed and talked about that, someone said, you know, I always wish that I had, I could part the cars like Moses parted the Red Sea. So I, but like, and there were some other things said that I can't recall them right now, but all of the theme of what was said was control. And in our psalm today, we see that no king, I know you could probably not read this, but it's there because I knew you guys didn't have it in front of you, but no king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes because of his great strength, and a horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all of its strength, it cannot save. Force won't help. Strength won't help. Speed won't help. None of those things that our normal mode of being 
look to to regain control seem to help. But the eyes of the Lord are on those that fear him, it says, on those that hope in his unfailing love. That ultimate, infinite, and unconditional, unfailing love. To what? To deliver them from death. That most basic thing fueling all of our concerns. But we do look to force, don't we? I mean, this is something we were talking about in the, in the, just before this, in the 10 o'clock hour. We look to force. We look to violence, or at least the like, implication of violence. Like, I could do some violence. We look to power. We look to strength. We look to our technology. We believe, it seems, like those that built Babel, that nothing is beyond our ability if we put our minds to it. Like Babylon, like Rome, or any empire, including our own, we believe if not in word, at least in our actions, we believe that technology can control nature, that we can plot a path to happiness, that we can, together, build a righteous and desirable world. We believe that we can do it by force of will, by ambition, by strength, and by merit. We think that we can be saved by the size of our army, by our great strength. We look to a horse for deliverance. Just like the Tower of Babel, we think that we can attain the infinite through the finite. So Charles Eisenstein, which I don't know how many of you know, uh, is a writer and speaker that I sometimes like. He's a really good writer. And then I, in the world of ideas, I like to wrestle with this guy. But he wrote a really great book that I'm not going to talk about, but it's called Sacred Economics. Look it up. It's a beast of a book, but definitely worth a read. But in any case, I subscribe to his stuff, and recently he put out this, and I just want to read you this section. It's an excerpt from a very long kind of write-up on kind of thinking about technology, but on the technology piece. Let me take a sip so I can read through this. So here's Charles. That is why I believe that the technological problem will forever chase a mirage. The mirage is utopia, a perfect society in which suffering has been engineered out of existence and life gets more and more awesome every day. Just look at the technological prob program's track record. We have made enormous strides in our ability to control matter and manage society. We can alter genes and brain chemistry. Shouldn't we have conquered depression by now? We can surveil nearly every human being at all times. Shouldn't we have eliminated crime? Economic productivity per capita has increased 20-fold in a half century. Shouldn't we have eliminated poverty by now? We have not. The technocratic explanation is that we haven't yet finished the job. And when our control is total, when the Internet of Things links every object into one data set and every physiological marker is under real-time monitoring and control, when every transaction and movement is under surveillance, then there will be no more room in reality for anything that we do not want. All will be under control. And this would be the fulfillment of the program of domestication that began tens of thousands of years ago. The entire material world will have been domesticated. We will have finally arrived at the oasis of the desert horizon. We will have finally reached the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. You know, all of this reminds me of ancient Rome. Rome had so much in common with the United States. They had a very optimistic view of their ability to per perfect themselves, to beat their enemies, to control nature, to plot their own happiness and success, and they too had undying faith in their technology. They were practitioners of what we would today call self-help, and many of their most famous and esteemed teachers 
I think after maybe a few cultural updates, would fit right in. They would have very popular TED Talks. They would fit right in with the Silicon Valley uh, folks building the utopia. Very much in common. They also believed, like many of us in our society believe, that we are building a just society, a true meritocracy, where fame and wealth are respectable pursuits, they're respectable ideals, and whoever achieves those things had to have done so by hard work, virtue, and strong ethics. So there's this dude, Augustine. You may have heard of him. He lived in the 4th, 5th century in North Africa. He was the bishop of Hippo. Uh, it, it, this was 35 years uh, kind of o bishop over that really uneducated, poor congregation uh, in North Africa. This dude criticized Rome. The eternal city. Um, and its outlook, very, very directly. In fact, so a lot of people blamed Christianity for the fall of Rome. And Augustine uh, disagreed and set out to give an answer. And he wrote a beast of a book called City of God, considered one of the most important books, uh, and, uh, one of his most important books, and it's a central text in Western canon. The Romans believed that they had a true meritocracy. And then later, Roman Christians, after like Christianity kind of finds its way into Roman culture and leadership, Christians like Eusebius would eventually say, not only are we privileged and well-off because of our ability and our virtue and our merit, but also because God has blessed us and favors us. So this is kind of a proto-prosperity uh, gospel that we still, I think, contend with today. But Augustine rejected all of this. He said that's arrogant, boastful, and cruel claims. That is wrong. And he said there never was, nor could there ever be, justice in Rome. God doesn't give people power for having virtue, and nor does he necessarily condemn those that lack. And so he lays out what he calls the city of God and the city of man. And he actually, this is actually the text where he coins the idea of original sin, the term original sin. So we hold this idea, this is from this text. He supports it with Genesis 3 and evidenced by the way we live and the way we treat each other and the chasing of phantoms and we're plagued by anxieties, etc., etc., etc. But you have the fall. We inherit, some say, a moral stain. So others might say a mortal condition. Regardless, we fear dying and we will do whatever it takes to survive. And so this is when, and this is the, this is the term that um, I want to share with you guys. So libido dominandi. This is, uh, this is what he says is the, the result of the fall. The libido dominandi is a Latin term. can be roughly translated lust for domination. The lust for domination is for Augustine the driving impulse of fallen man and his society, the city of man. The desire to dominate. The desire to control. Augustine informs in the, in the kind of preface of that book that this will be a major theme of the work. So he says, therefore, I can't refrain from speaking about the city of this world, the city which aims at domination, holds nations enslaved, but is itself dominated by the very lust for domination. The lust for domination is what drives life. Also, it is what destroys life in his view. It is motivated by a service to the self and a desire to control everything. Following the fall of man, Augustine's anthropology hinges on this lust for domination with a 
depraved self, so stripped of relationship with God, depraved relationships, broken harmony with one another, and then deprivation of truth, living in a, in a kind of false, false world and living and trying to live by our own standards, which we fail at as well. Man is totally given over to this internal lust for domination. Man is dominated by lust itself, unable to recognize that his problems rest in his alienation from God and from others and from the world. So man turns his alienation against everything in the world. In short, man seeks to find his refuge in control, his refuge in possessing everything. So he argues men could never build the city of God. And this doctrine in this book had been really helpful to the West in general, not just Christians, but to the West in general admonishing us that we should be skeptical of power and we should be generous toward failure. True justice, he argues, has no existence except, the way he says, in the republic whose founder and ruler is Christ himself. So maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe we're barking up the wrong tree. Maybe instead of looking for power, looking to power and government and power structures and systems and horses and tech, maybe we do better if we look to our religious institutions. Maybe that's where we'll find the city of God. But then we turn to Isaiah 1, and we turn from the eternal city to Judah and Jerusalem, cities built by the people of God, and we see God himself referring to them as Sodom and Gomorrah, symbols for those condemned for their hostility toward strangers and visitors and sojourners and the other. And by the way, there is no more repeated charge in all of Scripture than to welcome the stranger, which I believe is a call to vulnerability and a call to openness that releases us from this need for control. The stranger is precisely the horrifying other in all of its otherness that our homes and our cities were designed to keep out. Isaiah's vision concerning, is concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the great Jewish city that, that Philo, some of you may know that name, is a first century Jewish historian. He called it uh, the mother city, which I just, bonus here, I just think this is very interesting. Mother city is what metropolis actually means. The etymology of metropolis is the mother city. Um, but what he is addressing is actually their religious practices. So here's some of what he has to say. Stop bringing me all of these meaningless sacrifices. Your incense, like your kind of religious stuff, is detestable to me. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. I hate your festivals with all of my being. They become a burden to me, and I'm weary of bearing them. When you... Spread out your hands to pray. I hide my eyes, and I am not listening to you. Now, he says, well, hold on. First, I have to just tell you, there is probably no sermon that I, there is no text that I would rather run around and just like beat this drum. And I'm going to avoid that today because I don't think that's actually the word for this. But it is, it is like, I, because for me... So, okay, the Romans blame the church for the fall of Rome. And if you've listened to me or talked with me at all, you probably know that I blame Rome for the fall of Christianity. Like, and, and it pains me to know that we reinstituted priesthoods and a temple system after Jesus rescued us from these very constructs. And so this resonates with me so deeply, this kind of prophetic word. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. But why? What is it that Isaiah points to? Your hands are full of blood. You neglect the call of justice. 
But he calls them to himself still. God says, listen, come, listen, we can figure this out. You can do this. You can do it. You can stop doing wrong. You can learn to do right. You can defend the oppressed. You can take up the cause of the orphans and the widows. Just like the cities, just like our cities and empires are built in an effort to save us from death and to control our surroundings, so too is our neurotic religion. And it is neurotic often, isn't it? I mean, how many times do you feel or see people that they don't, they feel so certain about their belief. It isn't even belief. They know that it's true. And what might we call that kind of fundamental and dogmatic religion that leaves no place for any doubt? So I, I have always loved the existentialist philosophers and psychotherapists for this really for this reason, because they explicitly call us out on this account. They serve, I believe, a prophetic function. They stand up and remind us of that, that ever-present source of angst within all of us. You, my friend, are going to die. That's right. You are alienated, and you're very existent, in your very existence, and you sense overwhelming isolation. And guess what? You get to bear that alone. You are free, and that freedom is killing you. Because of what the, the, the responsibility that the use of that freedom implies. Guilt and condemnation hang over our heads and threaten our very being. And meanwhile, we know when we look in the mirror, we don't even live up to our own standards, let alone the standards of any holy God. Oh, and then bonus, cherry on top. In the end, all of this life, all of these questions, all of this suffering might, in fact, be meaningless. It might, in fact, be meaningless and empty. These are the realities that all of us face. This is what Yalom called the existential given of humanity, of, of mankind. This is where he said all psychotherapy begins. Like, they're dealing with these four things, for sure. Um, and so what do we do with that threat of meaninglessness and guilt and death? Typically, we deny it. We hide from it. We try to control it, and we allow that existential anxiety that is in all of us that we do know not, not know how to deal with or face contort and turn itself into a kind of neurotic anxiety that tortures us even further. We turn to drugs. We turn to busyness. We turn to dogma. Anything to keep that anxiety buried. We hide in our institutions, in our religious communities, that assure us that, guys, there is meaning and purpose and life is eternal. And either God is in control and you're not actually free because he's sovereign. Or there's plenty of grace and forgiveness. But either way, easing the weight of our freedom and responsibility. And we don't feel alone because we affirm these beliefs for one another. And we cling to our dogmas with all of the desperation that someone might cling to a life raft while they're stranded at sea in the middle of a storm. And I'm not trying to even make any statements about the content of these beliefs as much as I think it's important that we acknowledge how it is we hold them. So we talked about the strength and might of the state, power and force. You know, and then we, we looked at the religious communities, institutions, the church. And I think people often hear city of God and city of man and they think, oh yeah, like separation of church and state. But what is the city of God? Because it isn't the state, and it isn't the church. It's neither, and it's both. It transcends them, and it uses them. There is, in both, the libido dominandi, 
and also an open and holy spirit of surrender in both. There is xenophobia, a word that we know all too well, and also xenophilia, which is to say, it's translated in your New Testament, hospitality, but is a direct translation to say the lover of of the stranger. The city of man is present and obvious in our churches and in our states and in our cities. The city of God is also at work in both places. And so we saw a kind of correction to the powerful in our psalm and a kind of condemnation and correction to the religious in our Old Testament reading. So let's take a look at Hebrews passage where I think we see ancients that were commended for something. And so just as the psalm reminded us that the eyes of the Lord are on those that fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death, here we read, Faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see. He says, by faith, Abraham obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he lives as a stranger, Zeno, as in xenophobia, the other. He becomes the other. And it says he was looking for what? For a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. What is the city that he's looking forward to? All of these people, it says, were living by faith when they died and did not receive the things that were promised, but they welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were strangers and exiles on earth. And if they had been thinking of the country they left, they would have had an opportunity to go back, but instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, And he has prepared a city for them. They live as exiles, as strangers, as others. Now, Philo, that that Jewish historian that I mentioned earlier, he actually, you know, because there was this diaspora of Jews kind of throughout the world. And he would say, like, listen, the Jews that live in Alexandria are not citizens of Alexandria. Uh, They do not belong to the Alexandrian polis. They have their own commonwealth. Jerusalem, he says, is their mother city, their metropolis, not Alexandria. And Philo sees the diaspora as a negative situation. And, and he uses, when he refers to Jewish settlements, so he's writing in Greek, and he uses the word that is in the, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of Hebrew Bible, the same word for the word that translates Babylonian exile. This is the word that he uses to refer to Jewish settlements. Because we are exiles in this world, just as he said these Jewish people were exiles throughout the empire. We are in the world, you've heard this, but not of the world, right? We pray, may your kingdom come and your will be done here in our city as it is in the heavenly city. The city of God, as Augustine put it. And so what is the city that they look forward to? How does it differ from our current cities that are built out of our collective desire to dominate. Our cities with churches on every corner and yet full of inequity and poverty and homelessness. Our gated communities, our nations, our kingdoms defended by military forces, surveillance with big walls built around them. What is the city, the polis, the metropolis, the mother city that they longed for? What is it? And there are hints throughout Scripture, if you read, asking this question. 
But here's one that stands out to me that I love. Revelation 21. This is where it talks about seeing the, just before this, like the Jerusalem descending, the new Jerusalem descending, the new mother city descending. But here's an observation he makes. He says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need a sun or a moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp, and the nations walk by its light, and the kings of the earth bring their splendor into it. And on no day will its gates ever be closed, will they ever be shut, for there is no night there, and the glory and honor of the nations will be brought in. So what do we hear in it? No temple system. Kings lay down their crowns and they lay their power down. The gates are always open. They are always in a posture to welcome the stranger or the other or the sojourner. They are, there is no, they are xenophilic, xenophilia, filled with xenophilia instead of xenophobia. This is the city of God in contrast with the city of man. And so it's not a matter, I think, of swearing off technology or the church. It's not, a problem. it's not a problem to work like Martha or to have a horse or strength. But that is not where our hope lies. And that is not what we build with. We build with love and with faith and with ultimate concern. The one thing. The one thing that this and every sermon that you have ever heard has as its meaning. This is what every sermon has been trying to call you to, trying to remind you of, of the one true, beautiful, ultimate, infinite, unconditional calling, the vision for the kingdom of God, the true eternal city, the mother city, the metropolis. And by the way, this is what we mean when we say well-built city. This is a mother city, a vision for a mother city with all of its citizens gripped with that one ultimate, infinite, unconditional, loving concern. The mother city and the bride of Christ as one. We can be gripped like Mary with the one thing, and we can work like Martha too. This actually is how Tillich closes the sermon that we discussed earlier. He closes with this. He says, if in the power and passion of such ultimate concern, we look to our finite concerns, you know, the Martha sphere of life, Everything seems the same, and yet everything is changed. We're still concerned about all those things, but differently. The anxiety is gone. I mean, it still exists, and it tries to return, but its power is broken. It can't destroy us anymore. And he who is grasped by the one thing that is needed has the many things under his feet. They concern him, but not ultimately. And when he loses them, he does not lose the one thing that he needs, which cannot be taken from him. And this is how, this is the one thing that every sermon you have ever heard is trying to awaken you to. This is why we gather regularly, why we set aside time to strike that tuning fork, to gather around the table and remember, as Jesus called us to remember his vision on the night that he was betrayed. He took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body broken for you. He surrenders everything, all control. He takes a cup and he pours out and says, this is my blood shed for you, for all. Take, eat, drink in remembrance of me.